When our kids were younger, we tried to at least uh, teach them the idea of many cultures and the goodness of many cultures, and we tried to expose them to different cultures. Danae's family is from Cuba, and eventually uh, our family had uh, two boys from Ethiopia that we adopted as sons, and so they had siblings from around the world. We were part of a church that had a thriving international ministry. We would have worship and events where there were many, many, many nations present, and we were taking mission trips, and so we were trying to expose our kids to the reality of different cultures around the world for the sake of the gospel. And at one time, our kids began to claim that they knew three to four different languages, they were really small at this time. They knew English. They knew Ethiopian, which wasn't a language. Chinese, but that was actually Spanish. And I'll never forget the time we were at the local Mexican restaurant and Caris decided she was going to use one of her different languages to order for herself. And the, the waiter came over, and she ordered water. She said, agua. And the waiter looked at her and said, oh, you know Spanish. To which she responded, no, that's Ethiopian. <laughs> now, this is a Hispanic man. And he said, no, you mean Spanish. And she said, no, agua is Ethiopian. And I know because I have two brothers who are Ethiopian. And then there was the fourth language, which was called country, because we had family from Tennessee, and they would always talk about the way that they talk, their accent, the country accent, and that just became another language to them. And I'll never forget the time Danae looked at Anna and said, you're talking like your country cousins. And Anna responded, that's just how God made me. I'm from another country. As Paul ends the book of Colossians, this letter which he has declared the supremacy of Christ in all things, Jesus is supreme above all wisdom, all tradition, all law, all philosophy, all experience, all spirituality, angel, sin, death, division, hate. Jesus is supreme. And making him supreme in our hearts, in our lives, Paul now says, changes the way that we talk. We are to be distinct in the language that we use. We are to be different as though we are speaking a different language as Christians. Jesus himself taught this. He said, out of your heart come the words of your mouth. What's in your heart comes out by the way that you talk. Your words paint a picture of what's in your heart. And so it's appropriate as Paul ends this letter and he has declared that you're a new person in Christ. Your old self has been crucified and dead and left in the tomb and you have been raised with Christ, a different person Having this transformation from the inside out changes the way that you talk. And in this section of Scripture, 
He says it changes the way that you talk to God in prayer, the way that you talk to the lost in the world, and the way that you talk to one another in the church. If Jesus is supreme, you will talk different. If Jesus is supreme, your prayers will be distinct. And here beginning in verse 2, he tells us, if Jesus is supreme, your prayers will be full of thanksgiving. Notice verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The word steadfastly here, it is an intensified word that means to be devoted, to be persistent, to be diligent. But then he says, being watchful being awake in prayer. And so you are to be persistent, diligent, devoted to prayer, but you're to be awake in prayer. Like a soldier here who is in battle, he is always on guard. You are guarding your heart in prayer against the pride that would creep up, that would convince you, you can do it alone. You are in charge. You are in control. No prayer guards our heart from such thoughts as we are before God declaring our dependence upon Him. But we are to be devoted to prayer. Always watchful. Always praying. Now when we, this summer, we did our sermon series on prayer, we said prayer is very simply asking God to do what He has promised to do. We look at God's Word and what has God promised from beginning to end. And we align our hearts to what God has said He would do. That's what prayer is about. That we would walk away from prayer like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Thy will be done. I express my desires, but according to God's Word. And and I begin to pray, God, do what You have promised to do. Your will be done. And so as we Think about what prayer would consist of here at the end of Colossians. Paul has made it clear what our prayer should consist of. What has God promised to do above all things? To make Jesus supreme. To make Jesus supreme. That Jesus, who is the creator of all things, the image of God in flesh and blood, He is the reason all things exist. He holds all things together. God has promised to make Him supreme, to make much of Him from beginning to end. And so this is the prayer we are to be devoted to. This is the prayer we are to be awake to, alert to, always praying, God, make Jesus supreme. Be awake in that prayer. Be alert in that prayer. Be always devoted to that prayer. One of the word pictures used with this concept of devotion means to grab the ear of God and not let go. And here Paul says, grab the ear of God and do not let go of this prayer that Jesus would be supreme. You are to always be praying, God, make Jesus supreme in my own life. Make Jesus supreme in my family. Make Jesus supreme in my church in whatever situation and circumstance I'm burdened with. God, make Jesus supreme. This is the prayer we are to be devoted to. But notice again, as we talked about a few weeks ago, he adds this concept here of thanksgiving. 
throughout the letter. He does not want us to miss thanksgiving. If Jesus is supreme in the gospel and we have the gospel, we are to be overwhelmed with thanksgiving. Remember, the the idea of thanksgiving is to express gratitude. And we get this word thanksgiving from the word grace. And this is what it means to say grace. To thank God for His goodness. To thank God for His grace. And so as you are devoted to the prayer, make Jesus supreme, you're to also be praying with thanksgiving. Make Jesus supreme. And God, thank You for Your goodness and grace. And how have we known God's goodness and grace? Through the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ on the cross. The One who is lifted up. The only One who could die for our sins. The only One who could defeat death. The only One who is back from the dead. A former corpse ruling and reigning. Your prayer is you are saying, make Jesus supreme in my life. You are to stop and thank God. Thank You for already making Jesus supreme in the Gospel. And we begin to see something here as we think about thanksgiving and prayer. Christ-centered thanksgiving is the filter through which we pour our desires into God's will. Thanksgiving, Christ-centered thanksgiving, is the filter through which we pour our desires into God's will. It is through thanksgiving that our will and our desires are shaped into God's will and God's plan for our life. How does this work? Well, we do express our desires in prayer. It is right and it is good for you to come before God and cry out with the things that you want in life. That is not wrong. To plead with Him to answer certain prayers. God, heal me. Restore my body. God, move in in a miraculous way in this situation in my life. God, resolve this conflict. God, I don't know how we are going to pay for this. God, provide financially. God, save my friend. It is right and good for you to express your desires to your Father, God. But then... We filter those desires through thanksgiving. God, these are my desires. But let me stop and remind myself that if you do not fulfill my desires, you are still good. And I can look back in thanksgiving at all the goodness you have provided for me. And so I filter those desires through all of the good and all of the grace that God has performed for me. All of His faithfulness. Specifically, In Christ. Christ Christ-centered thanksgiving. And so I offer my desires and then I step back and say, but if you don't do any of this, you send your Son to die for my sins. You lifted Christ up on the cross as a payment for my eternal, infinite debt before you. You have defeated death in Christ. You have raised Him from the dead. And you have promised in Christ an eternal kingdom for me. God, thank you. Do you see how thanksgiving is a filter for our desires? And then we get up from our prayer closet saying, Now I remember 
that God is good. And however he answers these prayers and cries of my heart, they have been filtered through thanksgiving, and I can trust that he is going to do what is good for me. Because in lifting Christ up, that's good for me, right? Exalting Christ as king is good for me because I'm forgiven and I have eternity in Christ. And so I filter those desires through thanksgiving so that my will is conformed to the good will of God. But he continues, what else should our prayers consist of? Our prayers, if Jesus is supreme, should consist of thanksgiving, but also missions. Notice he says, at the same time, pray also for us. Paul refers to his mission team, that God may open to us a door for the word, that God may open up a door for us to share the gospel, to declare the mystery of Christ. Here we see what evangelism is. It involves a verbal declaration. It is to herald. It is to announce. He says the mystery of Christ. God's plan for human history that Jesus would be king over all. We are to announce that. Evangelism is to announce the king is here. The king has come. The king is establishing his kingdom. We are heralds. We are those who go before the king declaring he is here. Turn from your sin. Be reconciled to him as your king. And Paul, who is in prison, prays or or calls the church to pray that he would have an opportunity even there to do evangelism. Notice he says, on account of which I'm in prison. This is the very reason that I am here for proclaiming the gospel, for declaring that Jesus is king and Caesar isn't king. And by the way, the Jews killed him. Those who hate me, the Judaizers preaching a false gospel, they killed their king. And I have declared that. And that is why I am in prison on account of preaching this gospel. And he says, even here in prison, Notice verse 4, pray that I may make it clear, that, that there would be clarity, that there would be precision in my gospel message. You see, Paul understands he is in prison because men have put him there. The, the same people that killed Jesus have put him in prison. He's on a prison ship headed to Rome. But God's also put him there. For the purpose of being clear with the gospel. And he says, which is how I ought to speak. Now here, Paul's not saying, pray that I would have some insightful way to share the gospel. What Paul is actually saying is, pray that I would continue to be bold with the gospel, which is what I should do. Which is how I ought to speak. With boldness and clarity, even in prison. And we see here, Paul wants to be faithful instead of free. Notice his prayer isn't, pray that I would get back on the mission circuit. (laughs) Pray that I could get back out to planting churches. No, Paul understands that while he is in shackles and chains, the gospel cannot be shackled or chained. And so he says, pray that I would continue even in prison to preach the gospel. And we have to understand here that Faithfulness to Christ does not mean ease in our life. 
Today, we're going to get to the end of this service. And, and we're going to say, as we say every week, you are sent. And the reality is, in this room, there are hundreds and hundreds of situations that you will be sent to that are difficult, that are messy, that are hard, that are frustrating, that are heartbreaking. You are sent there to preach the gospel the same way Paul was sent to prison to preach the gospel. You are sent there to difficulty, to hardship, to suffering. And your prayer today should be, God, would I be faithful? That is your primary prayer in that circumstance. And in the same way, thanksgiving filters your heart's desire to God's will, praying for missions and praying for your witness in suffering changes your heart's desire. So often in that difficult situation, we, we're thinking about our circumstance and we're grumbling and we're complaining and we're venting. Why me? Why am I going through this? And as you pray in that situation, you are to pray, God, this is hard and this is difficult and this is what I want you to do. God, thank you for Jesus and also help me be a faithful witness in this circumstance. Help me declare the gospel as I suffer, as I endure difficulty, as I endure hardship. This is to be a part of your prayer life as you are asking God to answer specific situations. You are to also say, God, it, even if you don't answer it this way, help me to be a faithful witness. Is that a part of your prayer life? The, across the room. The most difficult thing that you are going through right now, put it in your mind. Have you yet to pray that you would be faithful in sharing the gospel in that situation? As you are longing for that conflict to be resolved, as you are longing for provision, as you are longing for, for healing and restoration, as you are longing for whatever God may have in that situation, have you stopped to pray? And while I endure this, there are other people who see it. My family sees me suffering in this way. They see the worry. They see the anxiety. God, please, would I be a faithful witness to them? Do you pray that way? Paul prays that way in prison. And I do want to say we are part of a church family with people who endure some of the hardest things, and they're going through them right now, and they are declaring the gospel to their church family. And I want to thank you for that. Folks who have lost spouse, and they preach the gospel to us, enduring this for the sake of the gospel. Marriages that are struggling, and folks say, no, I'm committed to the gospel. I'm committed to the glory of God in the gospel. Folks who long to be married, and God hasn't provided that in your life yet. And yet you use that time for the sake of the gospel to declare the gospel. You are a gift to your church family. You witness the gospel in the same way that Paul prays for missions. He prays for witness to proclaim the gospel, even in difficulty. And we, we see this in our own lives. I hope you understand the more you pray for mission, the more your heart is taught that life's just not about you the more you give yourself over to that. 
In Revelation 5.9, we see before the throne of God, there is a multitude that no one can number from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people. And we're to read that and be reminded that this isn't just about us. This isn't just about my one acre, half acre of land and all of my lot in life that happens on that acre. There is a massive world, billions of people for whom Christ died, who must hear the gospel. And if you are connected in that, naturally, you're going to be reminded, I'm not the center of the universe. We're not the center of the universe. This is a big world and God has a big plan. And so Paul, as he, if Jesus is supreme, missions will be a part of your prayer and it will teach your heart, you're not king, you're not supreme, Jesus is. How often do you pray for our missionaries? How often do you think about these things? Eric and our mission team, they, they do a great job in informing us. We hear that week after week. We, you hear something about missions here. And that's not just for us to give you some static information. We do that in the context of worship so that our hearts would be drawn away from ourselves, and we will remember the heart of God is big and God is moving around the world. And so I want to encourage you to do something this year. Every time I go on a short mission, short-term mission trip, I'm reminded of this very thing, that, that, that I'm really small and God's plan is massive. It's all I encourage you. Go, God. I got the material up here. Another advertisement. Go, God. Get another. We ran out last week. Go on a short-term mission trip next year with your family to help your prayer life, to help your heart be reminded this, you're not the center of the world to pray for mission, to pray for witness. I have this uh, calendar on my desk at home that I've been praying this year through all, for all of our church planting work. Get one that we're going to have two, 2024 out next week, I think. Get one. We, we'll print more. Why, why would we give ourselves over to that? Just so we can be successful at our mission strategy? No. So our hearts would be in tune with what God is doing around the world. And we would be looking to Jesus and His work that is above and beyond our lives and is so much bigger than what we experience day to day. And so if Jesus is supreme, our prayers will be full of thanksgiving and mission. And if Jesus is supreme, we see next, we will walk in wisdom. Notice verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. And here he uses walk. This refers to how you live. You are to live with wisdom. You're to be known for wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, the book of Proverbs teaches us that the beginning of wisdom, which is applied knowledge, which is knowing something and living it out. It's not just having head knowledge. It's living out what you know. The beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. And so you can't have wisdom if you don't fear God. To be a wise person, you have to begin with saying, there is a God who created me and I'm accountable to Him. And as a small, finite creature before Him, I tremble. I tremble before Him. He is infinite and He is holy. And He has spoken. 
And if I fear him, I will do what he said. Here in the book of Colossians, what has he said? Make Jesus supreme. Wisdom is to make Jesus supreme in your life. And wisdom begins first and foremost by fearing Jesus as your creator, trembling before him. He is the creator of all things. He is the ruler. He is holy God who will judge everyone. Everyone will stand before Jesus. And we tremble before that reality, but we apply that reality to our life by surrendering to him as king. And so the beginning of wisdom is to surrender to Jesus as king, to make him supreme in your life. Now, remember the book of Colossians is addressing false teaching, which, which teaches you can find wisdom in the worship of angels. You work up this ladder of wisdom and ladder of spirituality by worshiping angels. And Paul said, no, no, no. True wisdom is found in Christ. True wisdom begins by surrendering to Jesus as king. The one who's defeated sin and death. But notice he says, toward outsiders, before the lost world. Here he says, make the best use of your time walking in wisdom before the outside world. As a witness of Christ, your life is to be a sign to the world that Jesus is Lord and Savior. That's why you exist, to declare Jesus is supreme. And that's why God saved you. So before the outside world, they would see you as a sign, a witness, a declaration that Jesus is king. The average person in here will live 29,000 days, 700,000 hours. That's all you get on average. And here we see that our lives are to be like that sign on the interstate. As history moves by your life, it's, you see it coming. You see the sign coming. And then you move right by it. And it's gone. That is your life. God has planted you here so that the rest of the world in history would move by your life. And what are you telling the world around you? What's on the sign? What is the declaration? What kind of language are you using? What kind of wisdom are you declaring? Are you declaring that Jesus is supreme? This is what we are to give our lives over to. Why is this wisdom? Because this is God's plan. And it would be foolish for you to give your life over to any other purpose. If, if this is God's plan, Jesus will be supreme forever. It doesn't make any sense. It's foolish. It's stupid. It's moronic. It's idiotic. For you to try to live your life in another way with another purpose. No, wisdom is to say Jesus is supreme and only He is supreme. And some of you are here today, you're wishing for the next chapter in life. And you're not saying anything right now. The lights on the sign are off. Because you wish you were placed somewhere else. You wish you were moved on down the road. You're longing for another life. You're discontent with where you are right now today, in this moment, in this season. 
You're longing to graduate. You're longing to get married. You're longing to have kids. You're longing for a promotion. You're longing for the retirement. You're longing for the grandkids. You're longing for the next thing, and you're not saying anything where you are. No, God has given you today. God has given you this very moment to declare Jesus is Lord. Wisdom is to be intent on that every second. As we talked about last week, before your feet hit the floor, make Jesus supreme today. This is what I've got in front of me. This is what I've got at the breakfast table to deal with. This is what I've got on the drive to school to deal with. This is what I've got in the conference room to deal with. This is what I've got after work to deal with. This is what I've got at home to deal with. God, don't let me miss it. Don't let me be silent. Don't let me be a blank sign. God, help me in every one of those situations to declare Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. Don't let me waste it. Notice Make the best use of your time. Don't waste it. Every second he has given you today, tomorrow, this season to use strategically for him. The money, the relationships, the family, the neighborhood you're in to declare Jesus is king. And notice if Jesus is supreme, our speech will be full of grace. Our prayers will be full of thanksgiving, mission, We will walk with wisdom, and here our speech will be full of grace. He says, let your speech always be gracious. So he's talked about how we live, how we walk. Here he talks about how we talk. It comes from our heart. If our heart has been changed, the words that come out of our mouth will be different. And here he says, always be gracious. Now what's Interesting about the word thanksgiving that we talked about before, which comes from grace, and this word gracious is it refers to things we don't deserve. It's unmerited favor. You don't deserve for God to be gracious to you, but He is anyway. And the way you talk to others is to be undeserved. They don't deserve gracious speech from you. And so you're not to begin by saying, what does this person deserve to hear from me? No, it's just the opposite. They may not deserve this kind word, but it is to be full of grace, serving others. And then he adds this description, seasoned with salt. And we know that salt preserves things. It makes things better. But here this phrase is an imagery of redemption. Your words are to speak redemption into the lives of others. Your words are to speak the gospel which preserves all things into the lives of others. God loves you. Jesus died for you. This is how the Spirit is using you in my life. Seasoned with salt. Redemption. Your words are to make things better. When you walk into a situation, you are not to create chaos and just burn it down. You're to walk in and speak words of grace which make things better. Sprinkled with grace, your words like salt preserve, redeem, refresh. Now, I want to be clear here. This doesn't mean your words aren't truthful. 
direct, and right. They just come with grace. This is not sugar. Your words aren't supposed to be sprinkled with sugar, which is just sweet, fake, artificial. So you're not just to speak words of flattery that may not be true, people-pleasing words that are artificial. You're to be careful and intentional with Christ-exalting words that make things better, that speak redemption, that exalt Christ. Just as food tastes better with salt, the truth at times is received better with grace. Think about that. The gospel and the call on the lives of others that we speak to, to repent is hard enough, right? The gospel is offensive. You're a sinner. And your only hope of salvation is to turn to Jesus and trust in Him alone. That's offensive. That's true, though. It's not that we don't speak truth. Hell is real. The consequences of hell are terrible and terrifying. But they're true. You are to season that truth with grace. Meaning... Your words don't make them harder to receive, although they are true. Meaning you don't add your words and you don't cause people to be confused. You don't cause people to be pushed away from you personally just because you're a jerk for Jesus. No, you sprinkle it with grace and you're thinking, how can I serve you? How can I speak kindness even though I'm speaking correction and truth in your life? And the reality here is if Jesus is supreme in your heart, your words will be full of grace. Why? Because the only way Jesus can be supreme in your heart is by the grace of God. And you understand that, so you speak to others with grace. But if you are supreme in your heart and you rule your heart, you will use your words to hurt others. You will use your words to exalt yourself. You will use your words to condemn others and create chaos. And so if self is supreme, when you're trying to resolve conflict, your intention will be to exact vengeance. You idiot. You moron. Remember when you did this? If self is supreme, that's the way you will talk. But if Jesus is supreme, of course I forgive you. Of course I want to work this out. I will not hold that against you. Because God has not held my sin against me. I love you no matter what. I'm not leaving. That's seasoned with grace. If self is supreme, you will exalt yourself. You will be high and lifted up in your conversation. Especially when others sin against you. I can't believe you did that. I would never do that. But if Jesus is supreme, my life was a mess before Jesus too. My life would be a complete mess without Jesus. You're not the only one that struggles with that. Jesus loves me. He loves you. I love you. If self is supreme, you will be defensive. What did you say about me? 
You think that about me? That's not what I meant. But if Jesus is supreme, you simply say, it's worse than you imagine. And yet he still died for me. If self is supreme, you will draw attention to yourself with your words. You will whine and you will complain about your pathetic lot in life. But if Jesus is supreme, you walk up to everyone and say, how can I serve you? Oh, no, no, no. Forget about what's going on with me. How can I pray for you? Seasoned with grace, serving others. Do they deserve that? No. That's why it's grace. Maybe you deserve the attention. No, grace is giving others attention with your word. What do you need? If self is supreme, you will be a coward with your words. Emotional outrage. Throwing bombs of frustration and anger with little care of the chaos they create. But if Jesus is supreme, you remember Jesus wins in the end. I don't have to win now. Jesus wins in the end. He's won, he's winning, and he will win. And so that tempers your words. You don't have to win every argument. You don't have to have the last word. If Jesus is supreme, it's not, look at me, listen to me all the time. You step into situations and say, let me tell you how you have pointed me to Jesus. Let me use words of grace to tell you what a grace you are in my life. That reminds me that Jesus is supreme. Imagine if we talked like that. Imagine if we encountered conflict that way. Try it this week. And I guarantee you're going to have folks go, what? hold on. That's weird that you would respond that way. No, you're supposed to fight with me. We're, we're supposed to kind of get in the muck and the mire conflict together. That's what I wanted. And yet mercy, forgiveness, and grace, it's almost as if though you are speaking another language because that's the way God made you. You're from another country. 